stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. Yeah, how it feels. How does it feel? Um, it's uh, positively Arctic in New York City today, at least in Manhattan. I guess every part of New York City as well. And um, do you care? <laughs> it's The temperature is about 31, but it's going down to like 14 or something. And the wind feels like it's out of the north. And um, very strong, so it's really, really cold here. But um, I don't think you care. And I know you don't care. And knowing that you don't care makes me lonely. It makes me lonely, like I'm all by myself here. In fact, there was an article the other day in the New York Times with a great title. It was called The Minister for Loneliness. The Minister for Loneliness. What a wonderful title to a book. (laughs) 
or a movie, The Minister for Loneliness. Uh, anyhow, it's referring to, I'll read you some of this article, or more than a little some, and then comment on it. But it's extraordinary about what's, uh, uh, what's happened here. More than 9 million people in the United Kingdom, and that's a population of 63 million people, so that's one-seventh of the population, report that they often or always feel lonely. According to a December 2017 report from the Joe Cox Commission on Loneliness, this report prompted UK Prime Minister Theresa May to appoint politician Tracy Crouch as the new Minister of Loneliness, Minister for Loneliness. Minister of Loneliness seems to imply that she would be dispensing loneliness to anybody who needed it. (laughs) Minister for Loneliness, to combat loneliness. Yesterday, that was, this is back a couple of weeks ago, January 17th, actually. In doing so, the government of Great Britain is acknowledging years of research showing that loneliness can be detrimental to people's health. For instance, feeling lonely may increase a person's chances of getting sick. A 2015 study in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences found that's because chronic loneliness may trigger cellular changes that reduce a person's ability to fight viral infections. Um, If you're already sick with a cold, loneliness may make it worse, 2017 study found. Feeling isolated which is not always the same as loneliness, which we will discuss later in our class. Feeling isolated can also have grave consequences. Loneliness was linked to, listen to this, loneliness was linked to a 26% increased likelihood of dying earlier compared with people who weren't lonely, uh, according to yet another study here in the journal Perspectives on Psychological Science. So many different journals. 26%. Loneliness was linked to a 26% increased likelihood of dying earlier. If you're lonely, you're going to wind up dying earlier. And these are the kinds of things, all these studies, you know, I shouldn't say all these studies, but a lot of these studies, when they study something which is a vast um, plague in the, in, the, in the world, something which is a, a, not only just that, but a common experience that everybody has had since the dawn of time, loneliness, Right which is much worse in the modern world, much worse than it's ever been before. And there are reasons for that. But uh, every time you see these things, and, and they, you know, they always have to show you a study which proves this, and I can understand that. But these often are things that everybody seems to understand, right? This person sits around, and they're isolated, they're lonely, and it's almost the same as being depressed. I mean, how do they, the line between depression and loneliness and isolation is a very thin line. But people like this get sicker and die earlier. Yeah, that's right. Did you ever read Bartleby the Scrivener? There's a case by um, Melville, one of the great short stories ever written in the English language. Bartleby the Scrivener. You must know it from school. It probably made you read it in school. Or maybe you read it in college. Um, It's a story of somebody. It's the story of human loneliness. And I've never seen a better depiction of human loneliness in literature than Bartleby the Scrivener. It's astounding. Um, anyhow, back to the article here. Lonely people can also overload the healthcare system. Some people who feel lonely head to the hospital during the holidays, even when they are healthy. Another essay in the journal The Lancet showed. And um, I know about this. 
a lot of times in my life when I've been um, uh, scared and lonely, and sometimes even when I'm not, and this is an interesting thing about loneliness, which we'll talk about a little bit later. It's not a question of just of, of actually physically being by yourself. Isolation and loneliness, in other words, are not the same thing. There are many people, and there are other studies that show this, um, who are married and who are surrounded by people who still feel lonely and feel the effects of loneliness and even the, not just the psychological but the physical effects of loneliness. Um, I myself, even when I've lived by myself or uh, when I've lived with other people, live with um, a family or a wife, there's more than one, has been more than one, um, can still feel lonely. And I often find myself going to doctors uh, used to be when I didn't really have anything wrong with me. Now I go to doctors often because there are things wrong with me since I'm aged and decrepit. But also loneliness has caught up to me and made me sick. That's probably made some of you sick too. <laughs> you see, loneliness, not only is loneliness a dread disease or causing dread diseases among people who suffer from it, but uh, they can spread it to other people. If you're listening to me, you should be wearing a mask. Uh, okay, uh, let's see. Quote, here's from the prime minister. For far too many people, loneliness is the sad reality of modern life. Uh, The prime minister said in his statement, according to the... I want to confront this challenge for our society and for all of us to take action to address the loneliness endured by the elderly, by careers, which seems strange to me. How does a career make you lonely? Uh, By those who have lost loved ones, Uh, and people who have no one to talk to or share their thoughts and experiences with. Uh, And that's uh, one article. Another article, uh, which is about the same thing, really. Um, The Surprising Effects of Loneliness on Health. This is by the Science Reporter from the New York Times. For all of you who wonder, why am I only quoting from the New York Times every time I read the newspaper? Because it's the only newspaper I read. All right? Okay. I, I do quote articles sometimes that I print out from online sources. But if I say it's from the paper, I don't even have to say the New York Times anymore because that's, that's it. Sometimes when I go in the, um, the um, candy store to buy a copy of the Times or the – what is it now? It used to be called candy stores. Now I guess they're lottery stores with other things. And, or to buy a lottery ticket uh, thinking that I will get uh, rich and my wife can retire from her job and uh, we can pay off the debts of everybody we know and give away money to charity and um, order any kind of food we want. <laughs> our, our wishes. What's your wish if you win the lottery? Um, uh, where was I? Any, uh, yeah, so it's the New York Times. When I go in uh, by the New York Times, sometimes I look at the headlines on the other papers, the Daily News and the New York Post, which are always entertaining, I have to say with their gigantic uh, headlines, uh, you know, red and black. Uh, All right. The potential harmful effects of loneliness and social isolation on health and longevity, especially among older adults, are well established. For example, in 2013, I, this is the science report for the Times, reported on research finding that loneliness can impair health by raising levels of stress hormones and inflammation which in turn can increase the risk of heart disease, arthritis, type 2 diabetes, dementia, and even cause suicide attempts. Well, yes, of course. Among people, among older people who reported that they felt left out, isolated, or lacked companionship, 
the ability to perform daily activities like bathing, grooming, and preparing meals declined and deaths increased. Uh, relative to people, this is relative to people who reported none of these feelings, that is to say, um, feeling left out, isolated, etc. Uh, writing for the New York Times last December, Dr. Dhruv Kular, a physician and researcher at the Weill Cornell Medicine, Medical Center in New York, cited evidence for, this is for people who suffer from loneliness and isolation, um, basically loneliness, disrupted sleep, abnormal immune responses, accelerated cognitive, which could lead to uh, anything, cancer, you know, you name it, accelerated cognitive decline, huh, what's that mean, uh, among socially isolated individuals, which he called, it's a growing epidemic. Well, if one-seventh of the people in England uh, report feeling lonely or are lonely, and there's a distinction between feeling lonely and being lonely, which is interesting, and... Um, in this country, there are, what, 320 million uh, people? Maybe there is 50 million people uh, who, um, or maybe there's 20 or 30 million people, human beings in this country, who, if you ask them, would tell you that they're lonely. Or maybe if you wouldn't even ask them, they'll tell you they're lonely. Results of various studies reveal some surprising findings. Uh, first, though equivalent in risk, loneliness and social isolation don't necessarily go hand in hand. Researchers at Brigham Young University have pointed out, social isolation denotes few social connections or interactions, whereas loneliness involves the subjective perception of loneliness, which is fascinating to me. Um, you can be a the discrepancy between one's desired and actual level of social, uh, this, the, what they're talking about here is the discrepancy between uh, one's desired and actual level of social connection. Some people can be very socially connected and still feel lonely. Other people can be minimally, uh, have minimal social connection and not feel lonely. It's something inside you. It's something that is part of you or not, or to a certain degree. And um, it's this is uh, fascinating to me because... Um, the general assumption is, oh, that person lives alone, or this person, I, um, one of my kids, uh, when they went to college for the first time uh, out in the Midwest, far away from home, um, normally uh, a friendly kid, one of my kids, you know, they're both friendly kids, uh, suffered from the worst case of social isolation. Terrible. Could not even leave the room, the dorm room, to even speak to anybody else, even down the hall. Um, became almost mute uh, and uh, was on the phone with me every night for several months while I urged uh, this child, go down the hall, uh, look in a room, see people studying, come back, call me up, tell me you did it. Go down the hall, maybe say hello to somebody. That's all you got to do. Call, back, call me back. I was on the phone for like an hour every night until this sort of alleviated itself, but still had to go through all kinds of... And kids suffer from this. Uh, when kids go away to college, a lot of them suffer from social isolation, where they won't uh, suddenly, despite whatever their level of interaction or the amount of friends they had in high school, when they go away to college, and, and it's something to do with leaving home, I mean, going far away from your family, if you do when you went to college. I went to a commuter college, never got far away from my home. Unfortunately, but um, 
<clears throat> a lot of kids go away to college, and um, they a lot of them sink into this terrible place where they become really depressed and start taking drugs or drink when they never had done that before, and um, they uh, suddenly feel like they can't even speak to anybody, that they're not good enough to talk to anybody, that nobody would want to talk to them. Um, maybe the seeds or the germ of that is in them before they go off someplace. But um, it's extraordinary how this overtakes a lot of college kids. Um, in other words, people can be socially isolated and not feel lonely, right? They simply prefer a more hermetic, hermetic existence. Likewise, people can feel lonely even when surrounded by lots of people, especially if the relationships are not emotionally rewarding. In fact, Dr. Carlo Perisinato and colleagues at the University of California in San Francisco reported in 2012 that most lonely individuals are married. They live with others and are not clinically depressed. So then why are they called lonely? Why are they calling themselves lonely? And um, like I mentioned before, and I suppose you could um, intuit this yourself or it seems obvious to you, that it's very difficult to separate depression and loneliness. I think that everybody, I mean, it's virtually the same thing. Um, you can be depressed around other people, too. Or you can be by yourself and not be depressed at all. Um, I think it's probably, though, it's more likely to happen when people are physically isolated, when they're alone. Um, uh, but anyhow, I, I don't think there's much of a difference between loneliness and depression. It's almost the same thing. <clears throat> people who feel lonely, who grow up feeling that way or enter adulthood or even their whole lives uh, see themselves as lonely or perceive themselves as lonely people are people who are generally depressed. Okay, back to the article. Um, let's see. <clears throat> uh, let's see. Well, no, let's... Uh, this is idea of depression and loneliness. So let's... For people who tend to feel lonely, this is me talking, not the article here, although sometimes you can't tell the difference <laughs> because I'm so authoritative, even though I'm lonely. Lonely people can sound authoritative, although for people who tend to feel lonely, I think, I think there's an increased feeling of loneliness when you're with other people. And that's, this is ironic, right? Because you compare yourself to them. So when you, if you're the kind of person who feels lonely or experiences yourself uh, as a lonely person, it could be worse sometimes when you're with other people, uh, when, when you're, um, when you're uh, suddenly in a place where you have to socialize or when you're with other people. A lot of people feel more lonely during the holidays, and everybody is aware of the fact that people either go crazy or become anxious, and uh, there's more suicide attempts, there's more depression, more anxiety, people drink more uh, when the good old holidays come. Why is that? Has something to do with families. Clearly, it has something to do with families. Uh, there have been movies made for that, like that about that. Um, but I think for people who are lonely, lonely people, when you're with other people, uh, you compare yourself to them. Um, you you see other people out on the street. You look out your apartment window or out your at the window of your house. You know your bedroom window or your your living room window, uh, look at the apartment window. You see, if you see other people on the street or you're in offices or practically any place, even in your own family, you see them and they just seem to be more happy than you. They're socializing with each other. They're, you know, uh, standing there having a drink. Uh, they're laughing. People are laughing. What are they laughing about? It's not funny to you. 
you see people out there and you feel even more like an outsider. Like if you were just in one place and you built your own little world, although ultimately this leads to a disaster, but if you build your own little world, and of course TV and now the internet, um, all these connections make it easier, all these, all these ways of communication, receiving information and sending information, and all this, uh, all this stuff that you can see all this time uh, and uh, experience and hear, all these things can help you become more of a hermit. For people who tend to be lonely or isolate themselves, TV is a kind of a drug that enhances this. And the Internet can be a drug that enhances this too. You spend all your time on this and um, you become way out of the habit of socializing or relating to other people. It just... It just um, exaggerates your inability to socialize or to relate to other people. So um, it's ironic, right? You feel more like a freak, anyhow. Um, one of the other great, um, <clears throat> one of the other great uh, things in literature, uh, depictions in literature of loneliness and isolation, is if you've ever read James Joyce's Ulysses, and uh, one of the main characters in there, one of the two main characters, Leopold Bloom. He wanders around Dublin in the course of a whole day. And um, since I can identify with this kind of thing, he, uh, his internal monologue, he tells you how he feels everywhere he goes. And often when he runs into other people, he feels more like an outsider than he does when he's on his own just walking around. He feels a little happier when he's on his own walking around. But if he runs into people in a tavern or in a shop or uh, at the beach where he sees people, he begins to feel even more isolated and lonely. So there's that, there's that um, subtle, ironic kind of connection, you know, that comparison. <clears throat> well, anyhow, some of the article continues. Being unmarried is a significant risk, a doctor or somebody or other here says, but not all marriages are happy ones. No? <laughs> no. Come on. We have to consider the quality of relationships, not simply their existence or quantity. Yes, indeed. As Dr. Nancy J. Donovan, a geriatric psychiatrist and researcher in neurology at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, said in an interview, there is a correlation between loneliness and social interaction, but not in everyone. It may be simplistic to suggest to people who are lonely that they should try to interact more with others. It doesn't always work. It doesn't always work. Um, in other words... To sum up, one of the points here is if you're lonely, it's something you can't I can't say you're born with it. Right. Some people are more able to uh, to act and to live and to on their own. Some people are just better on their own. They're not neurotic. They're not scared. They don't even see themselves as lonely. They're just better on their own. They feel the need to, or they feel better on their own. I maybe maybe that's something people are born with. Could be, it's certainly something that people are grow up with and learn. It could be a learned behavior. I know it was in my case, because whenever I meditate, or and or, look at pictures of myself when I was little. I mean, really little, two, three, whatever, before it all, before the, the shit all came down, in my house. Um, the pictures of me are laughing, jumping around, smiling. It seems to me I remember dimly now as I get older um, that I was a friendly kid, very social. It took a lot of work by a couple of real experts, an entire family of experts, 
to make me feel lonely finally. So it's something that you grow up with. You learn how to be, you, you become isolated, you're neglected, uh, you go into your own world and you become lonely. And the point being that when you're older, you bring this loneliness with you wherever you go. You bring it with you wherever you go. It's like you had uh, some people bring a lucky charm, you know, in their uh, pocketbook or in their in their wallet. Some people bring um, a certain something special to wherever they go, and they apply it to uh, any social interaction. There are people who are people who are lonely. Bring their loneliness with them. They bring it with them. It's packed like in a backpack, and you can't see it, but they bring it everywhere. And it doesn't matter what situation it is. You bring it along with you almost like a, an illness that's uh, at a low level and sometimes at a high level. Uh, here, uh, psychiatric hospitals are full of people who are, uh, are lonely. I mean, um, this is not the article, me again. Psychiatric hospitals are full of people. They're full of people who are lonely. And uh, they're lonely in their hearts, in their souls. These are people who, who grow up with it, who become lonely people, Right. Well, when you're in a place like, uh, let's say you're in a psychiatric hospital, when you're in a place like that, if they're really trying to help you, they make you short of physical force, and sometimes they even use, even will um, give, give you a short tug on the arm. They make you go to group therapy. And, of course, it's not like group therapy if you've ever been to group therapy on the outside. Um, in a hospital group, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a different kind of thing. In a hospital group therapy setting, people might suddenly... Um, you know, stand up and threaten your life <laughs> when they may quack like a duck or uh, have to go get a little time by themselves, you know, like uh, in isolation, literally in an isolation room. Um, but the fact that for at least part of an hour, uh, you're forced to look at and maybe listen to even other people and sympathize with them too. You're encouraged to sympathize with other people. Imagine that. To imagine yourself in their place, to try to feel what they're feeling. Um it's therapeutic. I mean, you know, to pay attention to somebody else besides yourself because people who are lonely necessarily are, um, are cycled. They're, they're, what's this? They're short-circuited. They're closed-circuited. The loneliness uh, rechannels themselves into themselves, and they become trained within themselves as they grow older even not to pay any attention to anybody else or to be, even if they wanted to, to be very rusty at it, to be bad at it. Uh, but it's a relief for some people to stop thinking about themselves nonstop, as I know, right? Um, but a hospital, you know, at least a good psychiatric hospital, it treats you uh, in a, like in a balanced way. They give you a break from being overwhelmed by the world, which you need. And uh, you don't have to, all of a sudden you're in this place, you don't have to pretend every minute to be a responsible adult uh, when you don't feel like it. And then at the same time, they require you to come out of your little hole your room in a hospital and relate to other people, even if it's just a nurse or an attendant, right? Uh, I remember uh, in one of my, uh, one of my hospital visits, uh, I remember when I was, I was 25 years old, first time I ever was in one of these places, and uh, it was in the middle of the night. I couldn't sleep, just like I could, I've, I've never been able to sleep well up until, this, uh, up until last night, including last night. Uh, I was 25 years old, and uh, I was... Um, it's about 2 or 3 in the morning, and the lights are out, most of them. There's just one or two lamps on. And I'm sitting in this big common room where people um, during the day had tables where they ate, otherwise where they just congregated. And I remember having these very long conversations with an older man, who's a black man, who was cleaning the floors there. And um, 
uh, I felt less lonely just talking to this man. It was more therapeutic <clears throat> than talking to any of the psychiatrists in this place. <clears throat> he was an, uh, an old guy. Mm, I was 25, so anybody over the age of 55 probably seemed old to me. And he was, uh, clean, he was a janitor. He was cleaning up the floors. He did it in the middle of the night when people weren't around. And he would just stop, put the broom down, and stand there, and I'd be sitting on the couch sort of obliterated by my condition. He'd say, not doing too well, huh? And we'd have these long conversations. And I just felt better, right? I felt better. Um, now, I didn't, you know, I don't know. Now, I always like to refer to something that's going on with you, right? I mean, if, if, if you're listening to me and you don't relate to this, then you're going to stop listening. I understand that. Uh, but if I talk about myself, my experiences from people who communicate with me, even in this weird age of podcasts where they get back to me, sometimes not at all, but or maybe five weeks later, and they say, um, it's funny, people, uh, because they listen to podcasts way down the line, not live, they'll get back to me and they'll say, uh, I'll get an email from somebody five weeks, six weeks after I do a show. And they start right in saying, you know, your discussion, when you were talking about this the other day or talking about that, I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember. I have, to, I have to search my mind to go back to what I was talking about or... Maybe, uh, you know, uh, look at the notes if I still have them that I made scratched on some piece of paper about the show I was doing. It's a strange thing, this podcasting stuff. Speaking about loneliness, I mean, uh, most of my life I've done live radio, and I'm doing live radio right now. Some people listen to me live, but I know most people listen by podcast. It's a very bizarre thing. I always enjoy people listening to me live and especially calling up, which nobody ever does to these shows. Um, on the internet, because there's 467 billion shows on the internet, uh, sliced and diced, and um, people are busy. They're at uh, different times of the day. Uh, when I used to do what was called terrestrial radio, and then even satellite radio, there was enough of an audience, uh, and uh, they were spread around different places. And even people driving around in their cars could hear you. They would call in on their cell phones, though they shouldn't have. And um, it made me feel as a broadcaster. Less lonely, because I bring my loneliness into the broadcast booth the same way. And I've been lonely since I was four years old. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been through all the reasons why all the time. But I always had a great, like, a tug of war. For me, it wasn't just simply being alone, being isolated or neglected. Uh, I was also intruded upon in the most extremely violent way, in an alternating, alternating way. So I have, like, a double whammy. That sometimes I feel completely lonely, and other times I feel totally overwhelmed. So I don't literally know whether I'm coming or going sometimes. Or maybe I'm in both directions. Uh, there's this, like, tug of war. A tremendous, I have this tremendous need to connect. Does this, does this ring any kind of bells in anybody? I have a tremendous need to connect with people. But then sometimes when I do, I have the feeling that I can't stand the stimulus of the connection. It's a, it's a strange contradiction. And my, actually, my wife's niece, a uh, very nice young woman, uh, is an occupational therapist. She got a master's degree in occupational therapy. And she told me that uh, she had been working with kids who had an actual physical condition. It's an inherited trait where their nerves are located um, too close to the surface of their skin, where every kind of outside stimulus was more difficult for them to endure than other people. And um, some people are born like this. Um, they always, they, they feel from the very beginning, even if they grew up in a fairly quote unquote normal family, they feel like they're being assaulted 
by too many stimuli when they're growing up. They're just literally born that way. Like your nerves are like too close to, to, the, to the surface of your skin. My daughter, <laughs> God bless her, um, well, she was like that. Everything tasted, sometimes things tasted funny to her or too strong or things were too loud or, um, or she saw things, uh, you know, on the wall, you know, like a, like a scratch on the wall. And she said, that looks terrible. You know, other people just sit on some scratch on the wall. They hardly even notice it. And the, the best one was she was about 10 years old, maybe about nine years old. She was nine years old. And um, oh, she was maybe eight. And um, <clears throat> about, it's like 12 midnight. And we put her to bed, you know, around whatever it is, 8.30 or 9 after reading her story. And then I hear, then she's calling, um, Dad, Dad, Mom, Mom, what, what, what? We go in her room. She's wide awake, and she's she's looking pained, and she's miserable. And I say, what's wrong? What you, it's just like, you know, she should be asleep already for hours. She says, there's a rock under my mattress. <laughs> a rock under my mattress, right? And um, I don't know what she's talking about. So we ask her to get up, look under the mattress. Under her mattress, which is a, a fairly thick mattress, kid's bed, is uh, a pebble. And I, I can't, I'm not good at the, describing like, you know, centimeters or millimeter or whatever it is. This is a little pebble, um, something you might see in a goldfish bowl or something like that or a, a fish tank. little pebble. Most people on earth would not be able to feel this. She feels it like it's like a rock and it was bothering her. And she actually felt it. So where? She points at part on a mattress. We lift the mattress up. That's where this little thing was. This is the kind. There are people like this. Although she, uh, and maybe this goes together. She had, uh, and still has, a tremendous imagination. And she had recently read the fairy tale or reread The Princess and the Pea. And uh, thinking herself often as a princess, um, maybe she uh, imagined this and it was a coincidence. But she actually, I think she actually felt this pebble. Um, And this is not my daughter, but there are probably a lot of people who drink too much or take sedatives or downers or some kind, uh, you know, who do this, uh, that brings them, that numbs them. Because the outside world, uh, not just their internal demons, but the outside world is too much. It's too much for them to bear. And uh, the, the whole world is too much for us to bear, generally, for all of us. Now, even if we don't have this condition, right? I mean, just reading the newspaper or watching the TV news can overwhelm you, make you feel like drinking or getting high uh, or just getting in bed and trying to sleep through it all. I mean... Uh, Every single day, wars, uh, mass murders, Trump, uh, the destruction of our entire government, everything. I mean, it's just nuts. Um, but this whole idea, this whole idea of uh, of drinking, you know what I mean, uh, so that you don't feel any pain. I remember Dean Martin was uh, talking to some guy once. It was some set-up vaudeville kind of thing. The guy says, uh, why do you drink so much? And the other guy says, I drink to forget. Forget what? I forget. You know? I don't know. Um, anyhow, uh, when I, when I could drink, actually, I remember when I could drink, when I was able to drink, I can't do it now for various reasons. I used to love to have a drink at night, a good, strong drink, you know, usually, uh, scotch or whiskey. And, um, uh, it, it just helped me so much. I mean, I could, I just, I could calm down, just calm down from this tremendous over, overreaction to what I took as, um, you know, stimuli that were sort of uh, dangerous to me. Just a drink, all of a sudden, everything was fine with me. I loved everybody. 
They say drinking, drinking brings out your true nature. In vino veritas, may be true. Uh, I've seen people who uh, had a couple of drinks and they became like uh, mad bulls. Me, I used to drink, and all of a sudden I wasn't harsh, I wasn't hard, I wasn't tough, I wasn't scared. I just loved everybody. <laughs> everybody was fine with me. Uh, but, you know, this, this, this overstimulation, I'm, my wife and I went out the other night. <clears throat> Finally, we found some money or decided to have money in our budget to go out to a restaurant. And we went to a local Italian restaurant. But uh, we had never gone out to this place on a Saturday night. And I live in a neighborhood on the Upper West Side of Manhattan that's filled with trendy restaurants. People come from other states to come in there and eat. Uh, and the noise in the place was astounding. I felt like I was sitting inside a jet engine. I mean, the silverware and the dishes clashing and banging and the doors closing and opening, the phone ringing, and people people drinking. They're drinking. Everybody's drinking. They're drinking because uh, they can't hear themselves talk, so they drink. So they shout even louder, and then it's even louder, and they shout louder because people are shouting. It's astounding. Um, you know, I can, and I wish I could have had a drink. My nervous system would have had some protection, right? Um, I remember off and on when I was taking um, opioids. I used to take Percocet. I uh, started out taking it for arthritis, and then I just started. I kept taking it. First of all, it fixed my arthritis just fine the pain from the arthritis. But, um, and I never got to the point actually where I was taking it all day long. Could I say I wasn't addicted? I don't know. I didn't need to take it all day long. I used to just set it aside like a drink every night. I would take it around seven o'clock. And during those hours when I had this stuff in me, it would last about three or four hours. I had a relief that I had never, that I never had in my, in my ordinary existence and still don't have. It's the only time my mind and my body relaxed and that I didn't feel ready for a sudden, like, internal or external attack from some unknown malicious source. source. I, don't, I don't know. Um, anyhow. I mean, there were times in my life without drinking and without taking a drug <clears throat> where I felt relaxed and kind of benignly connected to other people or nature. But for me, those moments were very, very few and very far between. Um, well, as far as this loneliness goes, um, it's connected to this thing. I mean, uh, obviously, I'm making this connection, going off on a tangent here, but I'm making a connection. <clears throat> I think people, and I don't know to what degree this affects you or not. Uh, people aren't one way completely or another way. Um, but uh, <clears throat> I always feel like I've had to c control my connections to other people. If you're overstimulated, like it's a physical condition, if you're born that way, or if you're bombarded with really awful stimuli when you're a kid, even if you're a rather normal kid, and you grow up to be, you know, overstimulated and hypervigilant, um, I always felt that I needed to control my connections to other people. Uh, <clears throat> it's like a filter or a tap I can turn on and off when I want to. That uh, You know, other people are with me. I don't want them to with me. I, I remember sitting on a stoop with a friend of mine, one of, uh, one of my best friends at the time. And uh, I, would, I would be talking to him, and uh, he liked to socialize with people a lot more than I did. <clears throat> and um, I'm talking to him, and after about 45 minutes or so, he turned to me and he says, um, he says, I just heard the bell go off. I guess it's time to leave, right? Time for me to leave. And I've, other people uh, have, uh, have, uh, have said this to me too, uh, that, and I feel it myself. I can be with other people, even people who I care very much about or who I like a lot, who I love, um, 
Uh, and but at a certain point, I've had enough. I can take just so much of people, and then it becomes awkward for me because I figure I have if I'm at their house, I have to figure out a way, some lie to say, uh, well, I've got to get back home now. I've got to do this, or I'm expecting a call, or whatever bullshit. Uh, you don't just stand up at other people's houses or even in your own house and say, okay, listen, <clears throat> I had enough. I cannot relate to you anymore. It's not personal, but I've had enough human beings um, right now. I need to go off and sit by myself, which I do often. I do often. Um, I have to go in another room. Uh, it takes me half an hour to get over being with somebody for about an hour. You know, that's just too much for me. Um, but I think, you know, people, that's, I'm extreme that way. I don't know. I don't know how much other people are like that, um, and I have no way of knowing if I would have turned out differently uh, if I had a different environment growing up. Like I say, I think I was probably just naturally a friendly kid, but probably prone to being overstimulated. But there's no way I'll ever know that, of course. Um, um, <clears throat> but after decades, let's say you grow up like this, <clears throat> uh, and you don't have that. Let's say repeated after after a couple of decades. Let's say you're in your teens or your 20 or in your, in your mid twenties, um, this kind of, um, this kind of uh, loneliness or, you know, um, having to be protected from other people becomes self reinforced. Um, you bring, I've got some water here. Uh, it becomes impossible to change. You just get used to carrying your isolation. You carry your loneliness around with you. All natural spring water. What are the chances that's really true? <laughs> How, is anything all natural anymore with all the shale drilling and everything like that? <clears throat> so, you know, you get older and um, it gets harder and harder to do like a Houdini and free yourself from your own solitary confinement. You know, you know unlock the cell. I mean, you can't reach around and unlock the, the, the cell yourself. And if the door's open, sometimes you don't even want to walk out of it, right? Uh, it's like people who've been in jail most of their lives. When they relate to, uh, when, they, when they get out after 20, 30 years in jail, they have no idea how to relate to other people. The freedom and the spontaneity and the chance of, uh, of, of almost anything being likely to happen, you know, out of the blue, is unbearable if you've been in jail your whole life. And so often people, what they'll do is commit some kind of crime to get put back in jail. I remember once I, remember once I was lying in bed with a girlfriend of mine. I was in my early 20s, and she said... Um, if I went away, would you come looking for me? <laughs> and, of course, my immediate thought was, of course not. Why on earth would I do that? Anybody who has been abandoned as often and for as long enough as I was when I was young develops an attitude. And the attitude is, if someone's going to go away from me, even temporarily, then they're gone. They're gone. I don't even know who they are. I don't even think about them. And if they want to come back, then come back. If not, stay the hell away. Just come or go, but don't keep coming and going. It's impossible for some people, and I know it is for me, to adjust to separation. It's, my, it's definitely my biggest problem, and I know other people have this problem too. Somebody goes away from them, you can't even deal with it. Uh, my father, <clears throat> even when I was still a young adult, was always going away someplace. He used to call me up and tell me he was going uh, away to uh, call me up in my apartment wherever I was living. He'd say, I'm going away. I'm going on a business trip. And then he'd tell me the date that he'd be back. And I didn't say anything to him. You know, there's a long pause on the phone. As far as I'm concerned, um, the minute he told me he was leaving, he was already gone. He was already gone. And so for somebody like me, 
<clears throat> when I discovered the radio, being on the radio and being in that control room or in a booth by myself, it was um, perfect for me and perfectly awful at the same time. Uh, the idea like somebody like me who is lonely and socially isolated in a lot of ways, uh, to, be, <clears throat> to be in a studio and to take calls and then to cut people off whenever I wanted to, to control, to literally control the flow of other people's relationships and the intensity with me, to be on my own, to be in charge completely. <clears throat> and the same happened when I was um, doing monologues up on stage. You know, uh, the audience was sitting out there. They're in the dark. They're quiet, except when they're laughing or express. I can feel them expressing some other emotion. And I'm in charge. I'm the one who gets to express myself, and uh, they get to listen. <laughs> they get to listen. It's very difficult when you're, when you're like this to, to receive the emotions and to, to pay attention to the egos of any other human being. So the isolation of the studio, the radio studio, uh, was bad for me. Uh, it reinforced this uh, social isolation I had. Um, it's, it's very difficult. Um, anyhow, <clears throat> back to this article. <clears throat> it says here, sorry about the coughing. Perhaps equally surprising is the finding that older adults are not necessarily the loneliest among us. Although most studies of the effects of loneliness have looked only at older people, Dr. So-and-so here says, with colleagues who has analyzed 70 studies uh, encompassing 3.4 million people, said that the prevalence of loneliness peaks in adolescents and young adults. Then again, uh, in the oldest old. Why is this? Because you're separating from your parents. These are developmental stages, right? You're separating from your family and your parents. This sparks the worst kind of uh, uh, loneliness. And it makes perfect sense. Um, it's like my granddaughter, um, my daughter's daughter. Uh, <clears throat> she's about two months uh, older than one year. She's about uh, 14 months old now. And uh, you can see, if you've ever had kids and you brought up little kids into uh, teenagers and adults, if you have little kids, you can see the developmental stages. Kids, life itself is a series of stages where you separate yourself into an individual and then come running back for comfort. Because you're lonely by yourself. You don't have a strong enough ego. You don't have a strong enough individuality to feel like you can survive on your own. You get scared and you need that comfort. The original comfort was you're inside your mother's womb or you're just literally lying on her body, you know, with your mouth at her breast. I mean, that's skin on skin. That's the original, um, the original <clears throat> joining together. And then you separate, and you'll, you know, the kid, little kids will start to cry. My granddaughter, cutest little girl in all the world, of course, she, um, she's, she's, I clock it at about uh, two minutes or three minutes at the most. She will run away. She can run now. She can not just walk, but she can run. She runs away from her mother or walks quickly away from her, goes uh, to the other side of the room, and suddenly uh, the bell goes off, uh, the dawn's on her. She's not with mom anymore. And she comes toddling back and throws herself into my daughter's arms and just sort of lies there. She recharges, you know, like, a, like, a, like an electric car plugged in, right? She gets recharged um, uh, with, uh, the, with a togetherness, with the joining, the great, uh, the great primal joining. And um, she feels comforted. And then she can go off and run off by herself and comes back. And this goes on a million times, right? Um, uh, it's um, 
It's the way it is. And then there are stages throughout life. The kid gets older and older, different stages of development. Uh, will walk further away from you, will play by themselves more, and then have to come looking for you four, five, six. The kids go to school for the first time, heart-wrenching for everybody, separation, coming back afterwards, the same thing all the time. Um, <clears throat> now, all of this raises the question of uh, how loneliness and social isolation could be countered to ward off, uh, to ward off these uh, ill health effects and everything else. Um, there's, um, there's something called befriending, that, that all these British studies, American studies. Befriending simply means just people volunteer to, st- to spend time with people who are old and lonely, or socially isolated. And um, they go and they visit them. And, um, but they found out in a study of 14 trials of befriending that there's no significant benefit overall to be found uh, on measures of depression, quality of life, degree of loneliness, self-esteem, and well-being. Just because people uh, have had people come and volunteer to visit with them and talk to them and do things for an hour, it doesn't make any difference. And the reason is for that is, having been involved in experiences like this, is because it has to go both ways. You can't just be on the receiving end of companionship and help. You have to give companionship and help. And most of you already know this. You know, There's nothing new about this. The least lonely people I know are people who spend their lives helping other people, either as volunteers or in the jobs that they do or in their careers. Um, I was at my loneliest when I left my house at the age of 21, when I left my mother's house, and I moved into my first apartment. And the only thing that relieved my loneliness was my job as a welfare worker. I spent days and sometimes nights out in the field in people's apartments helping people. That made me feel better. And as I've mentioned many times before, um, the least lonely I ever felt in my life was when I was taking care of my kids when they were little, when they were babies and they were little kids. And it's, it's physical, like I was talking about my granddaughter as much as anything else, like people with their dogs. Nothing like feeding a baby or changing a diaper uh, or playing on the rug or carrying a kid on your shoulders or reading stories to a kid when they lie right up against you and you, and you carry them to bed after they fell asleep. There's nothing like that. Nothing I've ever did in my entire life is like that. So, I don't know. The question is also, how did everybody get to be so lonely? What is all this loneliness from? What is this loneliness from? I, I don't know. That's a whole other show or a whole other thing. How did, the, how did so many people in the world, and it's mostly in the modern developed world, get to be so lonely? Technology, definitely, that people could go further away from each other on trains and cars and planes, that they could move away from each other. People used to live, though they hated living in one small place, and that's why a lot of people came to New York to get away from the restrictions of small towns and families. But people at least used to live in one place. Um, um, What's that Carol King, the line from the Carol King song, doesn't anybody live in one place anymore? I mean, this is how it is. People for a long time now, for many, many, many decades for, I don't know, 100 years, have been able to go away because of technology from their family, from their, from their, from their uh, place of origin. And <clears throat> people in big cities can be lonely. Everybody moves to the big city, um, and although the streets are filled with people and the offices and the shows and the restaurants and everything, all the time and the nightclubs, um, you could be more lonely in the city than you could be anywhere else, and everybody knows that. Um, uh, even back in the 50s and 60s when I was growing up, 
people used to take care of their mothers and fathers when they got old. Everybody wasn't uh, in a separate place, like a hospital room or a nursing home or something like that. And um, I don't know. Is loneliness a human condition? No. Actually, socialization is a human condition. People start out in caves, and they live in small towns and places like this. Uh, and I really think it's this increased mobility. And then, then talk about, um, talk about the, uh, the technology of loneliness. Um, it's a great relief. You know, if you could call somebody on the phone, that was a great relief, right? But the fact that you could call somebody on the phone means that you don't actually have to go visit them. See, this is the irony. There's, everything costs something. And cell phones, definitely cell phones. I mean, um, you, can see, you can see that people who are able to communicate with each other every minute aren't really communicating as much. I think there's more people who are lonely right now in the midst of being communicated with other people than there have ever been before. It's just astounding. It's, it's, it's the great contradiction of modern life. Um, you know, uh, it's, just, it's just astounding. Well... Look, at the end, in the, end, the way it is, is that uh, it's, uh, we're born and the umbilical cord is cut, and then we're truly on our own. And if you're lucky, maybe if you're lucky, then you have parents or some grown person who loves you. Then in stages, like I was talking before, you know, you, you separate and you come back, you separate and you come back. This is the eternal human cycle. Um, you're born um, the original spark of life, right? It's born, you're born out of like a, you're born out of a great void, and um, it's not a vast, cold, lonely void like in space, but a great warm sea kind of of being. You know, this kind of this 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 great sea of souls. This is where you this is where you come from, and then finally, the separation in life on this planet is death. Uh, one of my shrinks once told me, "We all die alone." Yeah, you sold the parts, and the company of other people is you go away from them, uh, people you love. You separate yourself from the sentient world, and you go back into the eternal womb of everything. Um, I tell you, if I, um, if, I had a, if, I, if I was young and my brain and my body were working better, um, this is one job I would like to have, the minister for loneliness, to spend your life and even have some government power and money behind you receiving uh, receiving, um, you know, help from the actual powers that be to relieve people's loneliness. What better job could there possibly be? Broken windows, empty hallways, a pale dead moon in the sky. Human kindness overflowing And I think it's going to rain today Scarecrows dressed in the latest stars With frozen smiles to keep love away Human kindness, it's overflowing And I think it's going to Feet, 
Think I'll kick it down the street That's the way to treat a friend Right before me The signs implore me Help the needy and show them the way Human kindness overflowing And I think it's going to rain today golden haze on the meadow there's a bright golden haze on the meadow the corn is as high as a elephant's eye and it looks like it's climbing clear up to the sky oh what a beautiful Standing like statues. Hey! All the cattle are standing like statues. They don't turn their heads as they see me ride by. But a little brown maverick is winking her What you doing round here? Well, I, uh, come a-singing to you. All the sounds of the earth are like music. All the sounds of the earth are like music. The breeze is so busy, it don't miss a tree. And an old weeping willow is laughing at me. I got a beautiful 